meeting? Come join us. Okay. All right, so I'd like to get started. Um, I wanted to start by looking at one of my favorite, I believe we are. Okay, sorry. Um, I, wanted to get, I wanted to look at one of my favorite passages in, uh, in the Gospels, um, the Beatitudes, which we all know, the Beatitudes. Um, but the one I want to really focus on is one like I don't typically think of for a really long time, um, is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Um, and I think what I like about this particular beatitude is word choice. So it doesn't say like, you know, blessed are those who want righteousness or who seek righteousness passively, right? It doesn't say any of those things, right? Hunger and thirst, those are, those are much deeper things we feel. Um, when we're starving and we get hangry, there is nothing that's going to satiate until we eat, right? And if we're thirsty, like it's hot outside and I'm super thirsty, like nothing, nothing. And that's all I can think about when I'm like hungry or when I'm thirsty. And it's the same way in the spiritual life. Um, because nothing satisfies a soul more than God does, obviously. And he even describes himself as I am the bread of life and I am the living water. Those are not coincidental terms. Those are there to remind us that that is innately what our soul wants, is that hunger, thirst, that deep, deep desire for a relationship with Christ, which is exactly how St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. John Chrysostom describe it. Um, they describe it as a longing for a deep relationship with Christ. Um, and Sister Ruth, I'm going to quote her a lot. She's one of my favorites. Um, so she said, if we seriously want God, then we have to think out for ourselves what the various formulations of faith really mean to us. We must not rest content with rattling off the answer given to us by others. We have to see its relevance in our life and not be content until we have done so and we are living by its truth. So we simply can't say, you know, we have faith, I believe in God, I'm Christian, and then continue to live whatever and do whatever I want, okay? Or, you know, we might read a lot and we might know a lot, um, but if there's no relationship and there's not a new way of living, then all I have is knowledge. It's not like a deep conversion, okay? So desire is to actively get to know God more and more, going deeper, devour his word, um, love him more. It's a way of life. It's constant, constant pursuit. So think of it like your most precious, precious relationships in your life. Marriage, your spouse, your kids, uh, best friends, parents even, whatever it is. Any relationship worth having takes work. And it's not always easy. We can all attest to this, that it's not always easy. Um, and it takes sacrifice. And sometimes it's hard. And sometimes not feeling it. But um, one spiritual writer wrote, Hunger for God has to be worked for. It is a sustained act of choosing under the influence of grace. Hunger for God is born of faith, not of feeling. It is maintained by the exercise of faith. There would be something incongruous in a person insisting that they want God, yet never depriving themselves of anything, always having everything they want when they want. 
So again, our desire is based on faith, not on emotion. Um, and I will come to that again. Um, and it also means we don't get what we want all the time when we want it, like our children do. Um, and there is always an, an acceptance of circumstances. And again, I will get deeper into that in a moment. So sometimes in our spiritual life, in our pursuit of righteousness, um, we don't feel anything. Okay? We don't feel, there's nothing dramatically emotion, nothing, and it's really quite dry. Kind of, I mean, there's no other way to really describe it. But that doesn't mean that desire is gone. It's a different, it's different to feel dry than to feel apathetic. Um, it just means our emotions are fleeting. They can't be trusted. So another spiritual writer, Father Jacques Philippe, also a favorite, um, he says, this desire is not always felt, of course, and that isn't something to worry about. Yes, it would be grand to be in a state of permanent ecstasy. Everything would be so easy then, but it's not possible nor desirable. One of the familiar trials of the spiritual life is to experience spells of dryness in which one is poor and without desire Abel only offered to God a humble goodwill. It's enough. The experience of poverty purifies desire and causes it only to be founded on God. So it would be easy for us to pursue righteousness and feel holy when we always see the saints and the angels around us all the time. Um, that is not realistic at all. Um, and those feelings of consolation, they're not bad, but they're not, norm they're not the norm. They're not what we should be relying on. Um, but he says it's about the intention. So offering our desire and efforts, good, honest, humble intention, um, and it's not based on my own capabilities. It's whatever grace God gives me to do that, and God is happy with that. So another aspect of hungering and thirsting for God is that fading desire, the, just the, the fatigue of it all. Um, we get tired. Sometimes we get discouraged because we feel like you know, super inadequate. I've fallen 1,700 times. Like, what's the point? But that discouragement never comes from God. And we know that. That's, not, that's never from him. Um, Father Jacques also says, I believe one of the main reasons for loss of this desire is a lack of faithfulness to prayer. Whereas contact with God sustains and feeds this desire, contact kept up by reading, by sharing with other believers, and by acts of love and repentance of suffering. Sorry acts of love and acceptance of suffering. Um, nothing he says is new. We know more prayer, more reading the Bible, all those Sunday school answers that we always say, those are all very, very relevant. Um, but the part I like is contact with God sustains and feeds this desire. So once we start, God can't resist helping us. He can't, he's not going to sit back and be like, oh, you've, you've come. Great. Let me help you in abundance. Um, he always provides us with the grace and means to continue, even when we feel nothing. Um, another favorite of mine is Padre Pio, and he, has, he said in one of his um, letters to one of his spiritual daughters, he said, God will not allow you to be lost if you persist in your determination not to lose him. Again, God will not allow you to be lost if you persist in your determination not to lose him. So he gives us the means to love him. We just have to try. And on good, honest pursuit as best we can. Um, so in our earthly relationships, we know we have to give and take. And in the busyness of life, sometimes we fall in that really boring, mundane, everyday routine. Day after day after day. It's the same old thing. Um, and so sometimes in the spiritual life, it kind of feels that way too. And we can slip into indifference. 
Um, Father John Del Bay, in, in a book that I highly recommend called I Believe in Love, he said, and you, called to partake in the intimate life of the Holy Trinity, to know God as he knows himself, to love him as he loves himself, how sad it would be if you were merely to creep along in indifference. Routine, terrible routine, is the daughter of apathy. In order to rise out of mediocrity and lukewarmness, renew your desires. So again, there, that's the difference between having aridity and dryness and having apathy. Um, it's all about prioritizing God it, um, and keeping that desire strong. And even when we don't feel like it, just take one little step, even just participating in the sacraments, and God will, will continue and, and give us more desire to do so. Um, and sometimes, though, sometimes we're... We, Okay, I'll, I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I wonder, am I even like doing this right? Did I pray right? Did I even confess right? Like, you know, sometimes we feel like that. Um, but it's not, there, you can't measure spiritual success. It doesn't, it's not a thing. Um, and Sister Ruth says, it's better when she's talking about like pursuing God and in the everyday, she says, better moderate, unspectacular discipline than outbursts of sensational penance, which do little more than gratify our sense of having done something worthwhile. We are not likely to get much satisfaction from our small but constant acts. On the contrary, we're likely to feel ashamed of their inadequacy. But if they are kept up for the love of our Lord to express in tangible form that we want God to be our heart's love, then they are of great value and efficacy. So she's saying if we do something big, if we feel like, oh yes, I did this big spiritual thing, well now we have ego. And now we have self-righteousness. And now we've lost any of that blessing that we could have had because it got overshadowed. But if we do those small mundane things, not give them too much importance that we've done something, that's really what God is asking for. It's that way of life. Um, so we offer what we, what we can to God in, in faith that he will accept it. God, this is all I have. This is who I am. This is what I have. Here you go. Um, St. Padre Pio wrote to one of his daughters, so she had written to him and she was really upset that she was like, she felt like she didn't love God enough and she wasn't doing anything enough for him. And so here's what he wrote back to her. He said, you become sad at the love you feel for God. It seems to you that it is little more than nothing. But my good daughter, don't you yourself feel this love in your soul? What is that doubt or rather, what is that ardent desire that you yourself express to me? Well, you should know, my dear daughter, that the desire to love is love. Again, the desire to love is love. Who placed this yearning of to love the Lord in your heart? Don't holy desires come from above? Are we perhaps capable of arousing in ourselves one single desire of that kind without the grace of God, which sweetly works within us? If there was nothing but the desire to love God in a soul, everything is present already. God himself is there because God is not, nor can he be, anywhere except where there is a desire for his love. Rest assured with regards to the existence of divine love in your heart. And if this desire of yours is not satisfied, if it seems to you that you always desire without possessing perfect love, all this signifies that you must never say enough. We cannot, we cannot and must not stop on the path of divine love. And I, what I love about this is he's just really encouraging. He's just saying, just keep doing what you're doing. And don't worry about whether it's right or wrong. Or Just the fact that you have a desire to love is love because the desire came from God. The desire's not going to come from somewhere else. So he, he, he keeps encouraging me. I highly recommend you read his books. 
I'll give you some later. Um, so why does God give us the desire to love him? What's, what's the point? Well, it's because he first loved us, and that's a verse in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse, uh, so, yeah, chapter 4, verse 19. Um, and Father Jacques says, our desire for God is nothing compared to his desire for us. He loves us and desires us infinitely more than we can desire and love him. Our desire can have highs and lows, but God's desire to love us can never diminish or ever be extinguished. Despite our infidelity and lukewarmness, God will always want to love us, to give himself to us, and to save us. And if this desire of his that can awaken and stu- and it is, it is this desire of his that can awaken and stimulate ours, we must believe in it, offer ourselves to it, without ever becoming discouraged in the face of our destitution. We must believe that God wants to wed us in spite of our ugliness and believing, allowing him to do it. It is he whose gaze will make us worthy and clothe us in beauty. So if God wants us, and he very much well does, um, despite who we are, despite our sinfulness, our weaknesses and our shortcomings, then he will give us what we need to hunger and thirst for him. Um, He always welcomes us, and as St. Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So, now that we've accepted, if we're going to accept God's love and and his work in our life, then we have to trust him. We have to trust him in all situations, good or bad, of which we all know is much, much easier said than done. Um, There's no doubt we all have struggles, we all have battles, anything and everything that will agitate us, will agitate us in our lives. Um, and we know to expect this because Christ said, you will have tribulation. Not, you might, maybe you and not you. No, all of us. You will have tribulation, but that he has overcome the world. And he said that, that these things I've spoken to, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That was right before, that was right after, uh, during the Last Supper, right before he got arrested in the most difficult times of his earthly life. And he's saying, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Um, <clears throat> so this lack of peace that we feel comes from fear. Like when we feel like, when we feel threatened, we're going to lose something, or when we feel like we lack something, or when we feel like we don't have control over something and we want to do stuff ourselves. But the more we feel that, the more we actually have to throw that back on God and say, okay, this is yours. You allow this in my life, so you take care of it. Um, and, and so I'm reminded of that in St. Matthew. I'm going to read it. We've read it a million times before. I'm going to read it again because I, I think it's a really good reminder. Um, so again, Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. 
And that's my favorite line is the last one. Your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. I think I forget sometimes that God is always taking care of us, like even in the background, even when we don't notice, um, because if he's taking care of even the little stuff, like the birds, then how much more am I to him? So part of abandoning ourselves to God is being okay, like I said, being okay with whatever happens, good or bad, whether I want it or not, whether I expect it or not, and whether I understand it or not. And um, it's not easy. I myself, I don't like surprises. I like control. I like to know the plan. Everybody knows. Anybody who knows me knows I like to know the plan ahead of time. Um, But uh, it's not the right way to go about this. (laughs) Um, In the book Gift of Faith, also a great book. Um, author says, this line hits hard. He says, maybe you're afraid to abandon yourself to him because you are afraid of what he may do with you. So when you say, okay, God, take my life. No, well, now we're scared. What are you, you going to do with it? You know, so um, we have to, <laughs> I mean, that's part of it. It's part of that trust. Um, and sometimes I will say, um, okay, God, take it, but can, can I, can I know what you're going to do? Can, can I know the plan? Can I have some clarity, please? Um, and so, again, that is also not the way to go about doing things. So I have this story from Mother Teresa. I've told it before, but it's a good one. Um, a priest was visiting her. He, was, he had a very big decision to make in his life, and he wanted to ask Mother Teresa for her prayers. So he, he's from the United States, and he came and he traveled to Calcutta, and he was, like, serving with her for a while. And then um, she, he finally got a chance to talk to her, and he said, um, Mother, can you please pray for me? And she said, sure. What do you want me to pray for? And he said, clarity. And she said, no, I will not pray that for you. And he was like, why? And she said, because clarity is the last thing that you have that you need to let go of. And he said, but you always have clarity. You serve and you have clarity. She goes, I never have clarity. I've only had trust. And that's it. And that's what I will pray for. So when we ask for clarity, then it's like we're trying to limit God. God, I want you to do this for me the way I want you to do this for me. Um, but that's not how God operates. And that, there's that verse in Isaiah that says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I feel like we've all experienced where we have a situation in our life, and something happens, and it happened for the better than what we wanted and what we expected, and it was like, oh, and it came later, and we're like, oh, thank you, God, for that, because had it gone the way I wanted, it would have been much, much worse. Um, okay, I think I'm going to skip this. Okay, um, so, sorry, so, Again, Sister Ruth Burroughs, she talks about accepting whatever comes, accepting whatever God gives us. And she says, those who are steadily moving towards God or holiness live abandoned to God, seeking him and not themselves. This means in practice, they must accept a life of mystery and insecurity. The ideas they have formed of God and his ways are turned upside down. Nothing makes sense. All seems meaningless. And what spiritual life they thought they had disappears. So we think we expect, we think we know how things are going to go and how God's going to react, and, but we always have to remember that verse, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
And she says, the, to themselves, they seem no different from those who, with regard to God, live casually. Far from seeing themselves growing in insight and closeness to God, the opposite happens. So the closer they get to God, the more they trust him, the more they realize who they are, and, they, and everything's just a mystery, and everything's confusing, and everything, but they have trust. And they're like, okay, that's fine. And she says, nevertheless, they go on pursuing their path, relying blindly on God, even though he seems not to be there. They are beset by their weakness of all kinds and fail to make a good show in their own estimation. All they do seems paltry and shabby. Even their sufferings are not worthy of the name. They have nothing to fall back on, nothing within themselves to assure that all is well, nothing except the one thing which is everything, faith in God's goodness and fidelity. They are willing to take the risk of trusting that all is well and that it makes sense simply because God is good and he is their father. And that's all for them. For trusting God, okay, I know God is good and he is my father and he will do what's best for me and that's enough. Much easier said than done, but that's, that's the level we need to strive for. <clears throat> okay, one more quote from her. Um, so once we say, okay, I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna trust you, I'm gonna trust you, then she says, they are willing to take the risk, leap into the dark. That is what faith means. They lay the whole burden of themselves, how they stand with God, how their spiritual life on God, sure that he will never let them down. All their attention and all their energies are bent on doing his will, trying to please him. They abandon all care of themselves, all desire to see that they are making progress, all desire to be safe. They do not ask for any pat on the back, any echo of applause, any glimpse of their beauty. They are not interested. They are interested only in God having what he wants. They are sure that he will always guide them, showing showing them how to please him at every moment, and that if there is anything in them that displeases him, he will show them how to work with him for its destruction. They go on peacefully in their daily routine, feeling mediocre, unworthy of God, just like the rest of men. There's There's no posing, no pretension. They stand in truth. God alone matters. So he is not passive in our life. He shows us how to do the things. Once we say, okay, God, I want to love you more and I want to pursue you more, he will show us how to do it. And that's trust. And it may not look like the way we want it to look. Um, So I'm going to end with this poem. Again, Sister Ruth, she's quite the writer. Um, And it's a nice illustration of trusting God in his goodness, not worrying about what it looks like, what we do, because he'll give us that grace, and offering to God what we can. I made a garden for God. No, do not misunderstand me. It was not on some lovely estate or even in a pretty suburb. I made a garden for God in the slum of my heart, a sunless space between grimy walls, the reek of cabbage water in the air, refuse strewn on the cracked asphalt, the ground of my garden. This was where I labored night and day over the long years in dismal smog and cold. There was nothing to show for my toil. Like a child, I could have pretended my slump transformed, an oasis of flowers and graceful trees. How pleasant to work in such a garden. I could have lost heart. I neglected my, and neglected my garden to do something else for God. But I was making a garden for God, not for myself, for his delight, not mine. And so I worked on in the slum of my heart. Was he concerned with my garden? Did he see my labors and tears? I never saw him looking never felt him there, yet I knew, though it felt as if I did not know, that he was there with me, waiting. He has come into his garden, 
Is it beautiful at last? Are there flowers and perfumes? I do not know. The garden is not mine, but his. God only asked for my little space to be prepared and given. This is garden for him, and my joy is full. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Are there questions? I have a question. Of course you have a question. <laughs> um, it's not for the, the, it's the first part you're talking about love, not the trust part. Um, yeah. What came to my mind was Mother Teresa when she said, we are not asked to do extraordinary things, but to do ordinary things with extraordinary love. And my question is, how do we get that desire of doing the ordinary mundane, you know, the dishes, the laundry, all of that, how do we make that ordain feel extraordinary to us? How do we get to that? So I asked Abuna this question once, um, and he, he said, Everything you do, just say it's for you, God. Even the boring, like, I'm washing these dishes for you, God. I'm making this dinner for you, God. And keep doing that, and it becomes where everything you do is for his glorification. It's like a service for him. It will never feel extraordinary to you, and it shouldn't, because once it feels like I did something great, you did nothing, you know? So does that answer your question? Okay, great. Can I just comment on that? Because one of the things I read that helped me a lot um, was from one of, um, I think it's Story of a Soul uh, by St. Therese. And she likened, uh, just like Sister Ruth Burroughs, the spiritual life to a garden. And she said, in the garden, you're going to see a lot of flowers. Some are these beautiful roses and jasmine, and they give out these great fragrances. But some are these tiny, you know, whatever the small flowers are, uh, marigolds or something that nobody pays any attention to. And she said that the sun hits both and waters both equally, and both are, both are to them beautiful in the garden, that there's a space for each and every one of them. And so the point she was making was that for some flowers, they're called to be very fragrant, and they're called to have their relationship with God perhaps that's just full of a type of love for not just that flower, but for the garden. And then there's the little flowers that they have their capacity. And it could be just the tiniest flower giving no fragrance and nobody even notices it in the garden. And yet it's part of God's garden getting the same nourishment and the same sunshine as everything else. So she was saying, I'm content to be the little flower. And she calls herself the little flower. And I feel that sometimes we have these grandiose visions of what we think our spiritual life should be. You know, where, where is this extraordinary love? Where is the fire? Where is, you know, the miracles? Why are the dishes feeling like doing the dishes and not like, you know? And I feel like sometimes, you know, maybe that's, that's really just for now, not for me. Or forever, not for me. But there's a contentment in knowing that God is um, equally... Uh, loving each of us and has a plan for each of us. Thank you, Asha. He wanted to read But when he asked you that question and he said, you know, you do it unto God, it just reminded me of Colossians 3.23. It says, whatever you do, work with it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for man. So Thank I just you. think of that too. Any other questions or comments? Okay, let's stand and pray then.
Through the intercessions of ever-Virgin Theotokos, Mother of God, St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. John the Baptist, St. John the Beloved, St. Peter, St. Paul, St. Pope Carlos VI, and all your providence and saints, shall please you since the